indeed, we do need a revolution. We need a revolution of health right here, right now, one conversation at a time on an informed life radio, 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and we have an amazing guest today. We're going to be bringing on a little bit uh, later, Tatiana Obuhanit, who is a PhD immunologist, to talk about um, hepatitis B vaccines. Um, want everybody to keep in mind that Informed Life and Informed Life Radio is always for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or legal advice. We're just giving you information and we want you to go back out there, research, do your homework, find out what makes sense to you for your own health. Um, if you're in the Pacific Northwest with me today or anywhere up and down the coast where there's been fires, the air quality is still pretty bad. So I hope you're able to get relief, get indoors through some filtered air. Um, I've been paying attention to some of the wonderful practitioners out there who've been passing on um, some detox protocols for smoke exposure. And luckily those are very similar to what you're already doing to help keep yourself um, healthy and safe during flu, cold, and COVID season. So your vitamins C and D and glutathione, all of those are really good for helping protect and detox from the smoke exposure. Um, I also want everybody to, I don't, I don't have to tell you to be aware, there's a lot of marketing campaigns, a lot of money being spent uh, this season trying to push flu vaccines. And so I'm just encouraging you to please do your homework. Um, there's just so much information that you need to know. Look it up, go find out for yourself if that's the wise choice for you. There are studies out there that show not only is the flu vaccine not very effective, it can increase your risk of other infections. And if you are vaccinated and you do get the flu, studies show that you have a much higher viral load, viral shedding, um, even if your own symptoms are uh, somewhat um, downplayed because of the vaccine, you could become one of those super spreaders. Um, and uh, last week I interviewed, actually it was it was on another show that I did, um, the Patty Finn Good Health Radio um, Hour and, um, and Tatiana Obuhanich had on her show, the wonderful PhD Karen Feltzer, who has been looking really closely at the data at flu uptake globally and incidence of severe COVID-19 uh, disease. And um, that information, if you go to informedtwoiswa.org, um, I've got some of that up on the website with links to um, Dr. Feltzer's information and data and lots of links. So I encourage you to um, definitely go explore that. Um, in fact, once you're on the website, if you just put in the little search uh, function there, flu, you'll find a lot of articles. Um, another great place to search for information um, would be childrenshealthdefense.org. They also have a lot of articles on the flu, so you can do your homework. Um, and then, of course, explore other protective prophylactic steps that you could take um, to ensure you have optimal vitamin D levels, that you're eating right, getting sleep, staying hydrated. Hy hydration is huge. Optimal humidity in your environment, that's really big too. Get one of those diffusers. You can put essential oils in there. It's, it's a great way to help protect yourself during um, these seasons. Um, the science shows that there's a lot of things that you can do in your life that um, 
help protect against viral infections and that are broadly supportive um, during this time. I wanted to update you all on Informed Choice Washington's petition to the Board of Health. So back in August, we petitioned the Board of Health to convene a committee of some of these wonderful practitioners around you know, the country that have come up with effective working treatment protocols with inexpensive, on-the-shelf, ready-to-go drugs and nutrient um, and oxidative therapies and finding tremendous success so that um, in that way, the information can be shared and dispersed to the public and we can begin getting on with our lives. Um, it's been proving very difficult for these protocols to get out there because of FDA and FTC regulations. The doctors can come up with them, treat their patients, but they're really being restricted on their ability to communicate about them. And so we need the state's help on that. Today, actually, there was a uh, Board of Health committee meeting um, a health promotion subcommittee meeting, and they did discuss um, COVID-19 treatment protocol, the, our petition, but there was no update. They just basically told the two Board of Health members who attended that they would be presenting our full petition idea to them on October 13th, which is very disappointing to us because we had been asking them to please speed the process up because every day that goes by, people don't know about these things, but apparently we are going to have to wait, but we're not going to be silent. We will not yet have the reach and the resources of our taxpayer-funded public health agencies, but we will continue to spread the word where we can. Um, dealing with public health agencies is very, very challenging, and and nobody knows that better than the Informed Consent Action Network. If you're not watching The High Wire with Dale Bigtree, I highly suggest you find that, The High Wire. Um, they have a nonprofit organization that is doing really good work engaging with the FDA, the um, CDC, Health and Human Services, looking at the safety of vaccines and safety issues that have not been addressed that by law uh, are supposed to be addressed. And they recently filed um, a petition to the commissioner of the FDA asking uh, the commissioner to withdraw or suspend the approval for two vaccines, two hepatitis B vaccines, Endurix B and Recombivax HB, to withdraw it for infants and toddlers until a properly controlled and adequately powered double-blind trial of sufficient duration is conducted to assess the safety of those products. The clinical trials that were relied upon before they gave this to babies and toddlers lasted no more than five days. Yeah, so it leaves you a little bit spe speechless, especially when everybody's you know really understanding with a COVID-19 vaccine, how you really need enough time to assess safety as Informed Twist Washington and so many people have been saying, vaccine safety science has really been in a bad place for a long time. So Informed Twist Washington is very pleased to support ICANN and this petition. And we did file um, comments at the Federal Register and those are available on our uh, advocacy page on our website if you'd like to read more. And if you wanna go comment yourself on this petition and show your support, it's all there on our website. Um, so besides the safety concerns for infants and children, though, with hepatitis B vaccines, our guest, uh, Tatiana Opuhanich, who is a PhD in immunology, 
she's been closely examining the science in those two vaccines. Both of them are produced using baker's yeast. And because of her own health issues that began with um, when she was vaccinated as an adult. And so with that, I wanna bring on Tatiana. Um, I'm gonna ask her to unmute herself and reveal herself. And there she is. Uh, welcome uh, to the program, Tatiana. Hello, Bernadette, and it's great to be joining you today. Oh, thank you for being here. And you know, um, my eyeball skipped right from mentioning that to your bio. So you just sit, sit right where you are and I'm gonna let you uh, blush a little bit as I read um, about you. So Tatiana is a founding member and immune science educator at Building Bridges in Children's Health, BBCH for short an international online community of parents, health advocates, and health professionals dedicated to learning the science that supports children's health and healthy immunity. Um, I hope we have time to talk about that a little bit because I love BBCH. Uh, between 2015 and 2019, she served as founding director and secretary on the board of Physicians for Informed Consent, and she is currently serving in advising capacity to Informed Choice Washington, for which we are eternally grateful. Um, she was born and raised in Ukraine, and at the young age of 17, she was accepted as a foreign student on a full scholarship to a private liberal arts college in Massachusetts from where she graduated summa cum laude with a BA in biochemistry. And she went on to earn a PhD in immunology at the Rockefeller University in New York, New York. She left mainstream biomedical establishment and joined the medical freedom movement in 2012 after completing her postdoctoral research training at Stanford. And we're, we are so grateful for that, Tatiana, that you did all this wonderful education and then you looked out in the world and you saw where your passion and your talents had a need and and we're so grateful that you're in this community thank you um so could could you begin by telling us you know what happened to you you know with the hepatitis b vaccine and your health issues Right. So first of all, let's just proceed that and say the reason why I joined a medical freedom movement is not so much because of vaccine injury, which now it appears to be, but more so with my discontent with the fact that vaccines do not provide lifelong immunity, just how we were educated to believe in that I had actually, I had measles vaccine and then I got measles anyway. So that was my point of um, seeing the light. Mm -hmm. And I haven't really realized for a long time that there was an issue with uh, vaccine for me on the side of vaccine injury. And that's why I understand how easy it is to miss. So basically how I even realized that something is going on is when I was preparing lectures for BBCH community where we just looking at each vaccine and what's in there. And I finally looked into hepatitis B vaccine because that was one of the topics that we were discussing. And so finally I found out that hepatitis B vaccine is currently made in Baker's yeast. And the amount of antigen, Baker's yeast antigen is that in that vaccine is actually exceeding the amount of hepatitis B viral antigen. And I was thinking, well, if you have two antigens in vaccine. We are expecting to have immune response only to one of them and not to the <laughs> other one. Like how would the immune system know which one we want? Exactly. And, and then I was thinking, okay, 
uh, well, maybe I be um, priming the immune system of all our in infants and toddlers to then react to Baker's yeast. And what will happen? What kind of symptoms will happen to them once they start consuming Baker's yeast? And then it dawned on me, then it's only then, then um, I thought, well, but I got this vaccine in graduate school when I was doing my immunology rotations. One of the labs, we were using blood samples from high-risk populations. So we were offered this vaccine and I got it voluntarily, didn't think twice about it. And then I'm having for a decade or more since then, abdominal pain. I'm having the bouts of GI issues with abdominal pain. And I just thought, well, this is something I have to live with. I could never relate that to a vaccine because it wasn't right coming off right after vaccine. It wasn't you know, any catastrophic or immediate reaction that you can even link. But it's certainly um, you know, something to investigate. So I thought, okay, so maybe what I need to do is eliminate Baker's yeast from my diet. Stop having bread or any drinks that might have it and see how it goes. And so I did that just you know, experimentally, hypothetically. I eliminated Baker's yeast. I had a really good stretch of being free from abdominal pain. So I thought, okay, now let me introduce it and see what happens and the pain is back. Mm. And I did that a couple of times because sometimes you slip and you eat something or you just, you don't know that there is yeast present in a certain product. And then you look at the label and see, oh yeah, that's why. So this is how it came. Um, this is how uh, I got into this. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, a person of science studying science, even, even you entering that, you had the assumption of safety when in college you were said, hey, you're going to be potentially exposed to blood that might have hep B, so you need the vaccine. And it didn't occur to you to research it. I mean, such was the, um, you know, the kind of the mindset and what is put out there that vaccines are safe and effective, that you don't really, yeah. even yeah. really so have to do your research. All, all <laughs> the experts in immunology, they have this mindset. We just, we are not told what's in vaccines. We don't study what's in vaccines. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to petition to, or I did petition to our state department of health mm -hmm. to actually notify people that there is something else in those vaccines in addition to hepatitis B antigen so that if yeah. something starts happening to the, to their children or to themselves, that they can at least have some leverage to work on their gut issues by eliminating these antigens from their diet instead of waiting decades or forever and not really knowing what's happening. Can can you explain to listeners what the word antigen man, means in case it's yeah. new to them? Yeah. Yeah, it's an immunologic term, which basically means a protein or some substance which immune system can recognize as either being foreign or innocuous because some antigens are innocuous. And when we um, consume, you know, food antigens orally, immune system tends to get, get tolerized. So you have a tolerogenic process. So let's say if you just eat Baker's yeast, it should be fine. However, if the same antigen comes with a danger signal, such as adjuvant, which is another immunologic terminology, which um, signals to the immune system that this particular antigen, you need to react, you need to mount an immune response, put on defenses. So then if the same antigen cam comes with adjuvant, it becomes immunogenic 
and it basically primes your immune system to then react to this um, formerly innocuous thing with uh, with problems. So basically, it's almost like turning a friend into foe. Exactly. Yeah, and the and the term adjuvant is something that they put in the vaccine in order to wake up the immune system to pay attention to go on the attack. And in the case of these two hepatitis B vaccines that ICANN has petitioned to have withdrawn um, until safety studies can be done, at least drawn for use in infants and toddlers, um, do both of those have aluminum as their adjuvant? Yes, they both have aluminum. And basically aluminum is added just to make the immune response bigger um, or maybe even just to reduce even the amount of antigen that they can put in the vaccine. So mm-hmm. aluminum is very cheap to add. The antigen is expensive. So if you, you can reduce the amount of antigen, increase the amount of aluminum, you get similar yeah. response. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really could cut down on many vaccine injuries is if vaccines would be made without the use of such common products like yeast and dairy and, you know, some of the, and eggs. So, you know, this epidemic of food allergies that food allergies that we have um, are because so many of our vaccines are grown in cultured because a lot of people don't realize that to make a vaccine, you have to either take the bacteria or a virus. It's a live thing you have to grow it, you have to culture it, you know, and replicate it. And this has to be done in a medium that it will feed upon. Um, It's like growing anything and they tend, it has to be only certain things will grow. Um, Cultures allow it to grow well. And unfortunately, some of those are very common foods, what they're using. um, Yeah. And not only, not only that, it's when in the beginning, we just had few vaccines. So they had certain cultures that were adopted for those particular vaccines. And now as they're making more and more, they have to adapt their culture medium to optimize conditions for these new vaccines. And so they're adding new ingredients. For example, chickenpox vaccine uh, is grown in um, tissue culture to which fetal bovine serum is added. So we have another layer of other antigens um, that we will have to keep an eye on. So did you say the, the fetal bovine? The fetal bovine serum is being added to cultures for um, the chicken culture, pox. Chicken pox, yes. And chicken pox also, though, is cultured on human fetal. Yes, cells, yes. So basically, right. it's the, the serum is there to grow the the fetal um, uh, cells. Oh, I see. Okay, so you're yeah, doing... and that is the virus that's replicating in those cells, and then they're collecting okay. the virus. Yeah. So listeners can see why I so much appreciate having Tatiana as an advisor to Informed Choice Washington, because this is such a complex subject. And, you know, she will correct me and advise me when I steer a little bit wrong one way or the other. And I'm so appreciative of that. So here you have this figured out that because of the way vaccines work, because of the ingredients in um, vaccines that have yeast that are, are, are made in baker's yeast, and and let's, do you have a list of them? Do you know which ones are made with yeast besides hepatitis B? There's there's also Gardasil has yeast. Yes, so so far there are two types of yeast recombinant vaccines. Um, the hepatitis B vaccines, at least the old ones, because there is now a new one and we can discuss that separately. And also mm-hmm. HPV, which is Gardasil. So these okay. two are made using yeast recombinant technology. And basically what it is, 
they are not just using yeast to grow this vaccine in, they're making a genetically modified yeast that has a viral protein in it. So as the viral particle is budding off the yeast surface, it's picking up a lot of the yeast cell wall and those mm -hmm. components in what this is what they're injecting into you as a vaccine. Wow. Um, yeah, it's very concerning. And, and of course, you know, one of the things we're pushing for in the vaccine safety movement is let's get some studies done. Let's find out in animal models and in really good clinical trials, if any of these ingredients are, you know, are capable of causing these things before they're licensed, before you put them out on the general public. Because once it's out there, like you said, sometimes there's that delay. You don't know that there's the association. And the further away you are from a symptom from getting the vaccine, the more difficult it is to find yeah. out. And, and that's why you see why four or five days of looking at uh, what health issues come up after vaccine is is ridiculous yeah. because yeah. you really need to look at vaccinated versus unvaccinated groups for a long time to pick up all of this and see which group has more of these issues. And obviously it's mm -hmm. not limited just to GI issues. There could be neurological issues and everything else. Yeah. So you wrote this, this really good petition to the Washington State Department of Health asking them to not to withdraw, but just to help advise and, and provide informed consent to anybody getting a vaccine with yeast that there may be this health issue. And then what was their response? Well, they denied it outright and they said that they only follow the guidelines from the SCIP and the SIP is Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices. So that's where they take their guidance. So then I don't really understand why do we even have petition process? Like what's the point of citizens <laughs> to petition which we are by law allowed to do, yeah. but then they will from the very start just say, well, they're not taking any information from you. That seems to happen so far with all our, the petitions that we have done. Um, Tatiana was vital in this brilliant, <laughs> I think brilliant petition Informed Choice Washington submitted with her wonderful analysis of the Tdap and Dtap vaccines, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, um, because all of the recent science shows that the pertussis vaccine not only doesn't prevent infection, um, colonization, and transmission, but if it's your first exposure to pertussis, which is whooping cough, um, as an infant, it permanently skews your immune system, so you never mount a proper antibody response, and it makes you forever like dependent if you don't want to have symptoms. Although, you know, outbreaks are happening in fully vaccinated children now. Um, there's just so many issues there. So th that's also on our website if you want to go read her analysis of the DTAP, TDAP. But we just asked the Board of Health in a petition to please um, not make that vaccine mandatory. Allow that to be parental choice, because if the idea is for children to be safe in a classroom or a daycare preschool, if the vaccine doesn't prevent a child exposed to pertussis or diphtheria from um, colonizing and spreading it to others, there's no, it doesn't seem as if there should be state authority to make you get it. It's a personal choice. But um, it made it up 
they talked about it, gave me three months of public comment, shot it down. We appealed, it went to the governor's office and ultimately they wrote back and this is so funny, right, Tatiana? Cause you gave them the most up-to-date, hard hitting science. I mean, some of this stuff was only maybe two months old and they came back with, your argument is outweighed by current science. That was it. And they gave us no science, they gave us nothing. So then I asked for their science and they said, well, we'll have to ask for it. I'm like, what do you mean you have to ask for it? You denied our appeal based on current science. Isn't it at your fingertips? Isn't it in a file you could just attach and zip over? But no, they had to ask the Department of Health for it. And a week or so later, I got uh, an email with like three or four links to general information websites. They had nothing. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out what do we do? I mean, there's got to be something. It just fries me that they could just dismiss it with zero reason. But anyway, I'm, I'm squirreling as I want to do. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't appeal because there, there is education. We do educate the community and we help people, even when our petitions are denied, see the need for reform and the need for individuals to do their own homework. Um, so we're getting uh, about one more minute here and then we're going to be moving on to a break. So uh, what I'd like to talk about when we come back from the break, Tatiana, are our um, symptoms. Oh, wait. First of all, we didn't touch on the fact that they came back with science that had to do with allergies. But what you're looking for is something different. So um, if you could explain that just a little bit, because it's not an IgE, IgG type allergy that was causing your symptoms. Um, tell us what that is. Sure. So I've been doing this after the break. Um, why, don't, why don't you go ahead, just introduce the topic because we got All like right. one more minute. So yeah, um, so we, what we will be looking here is a new phenomenon called non-IgE um, gastrointestinal food allergy, a complicated okay. term, but that's what it is. This is how it shows up in medical literature. Okay. And is it, um, is there a test for it the way there is for the other there is no test in conventional medical literature. The only thing they say is elimination diet for three weeks, followed by okay. a challenge. And if okay. the symptoms return, you know you have. Okay, that's really good to know. All right, well, we'll be picking up right where we left off when we get back from the break. You're listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Did you know that in 1986, Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, granting liability protection to drug companies for injuries and deaths caused by their vaccine products recommended to children? Did you know injuries and deaths of pregnant women and their unborn children were added to the act in 2016? Did you know that on February 4th, 2020, drug companies who make COVID-19 vaccines were placed under the liability protection of the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, known as the PrEP Act? To learn the history of how we got here in order to protect yourself now and in the future, you must see the film, 1986, The Act. Go to 1986theact.com today. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, 
president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including healthcare choices. Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington state. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and with me today is Tatiana Opuhanich, and we are discussing hepatitis B vaccine and um, a condition that happened to her, and that may very well be happening to a lot of people who aren't aware of it, and that is having some digestive GI issues due to um, that injection with the yeast that is in those vaccines. So you say that there's no test for this and it's just a process of elimination diet to figure it out? Yeah, so let me maybe just, um, you know, qualify that, that there is no test in conventional medicine. There are some uh, doctors who are aware of this issue and they are doing tests that's probably just for their own patients. There may be just, you know, some experimental tests. But what is known generally about this different type of GI type of allergy is that it's not mediated by antibodies, it's mediated by T cells. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at T cells and they're taking T cells from patient's blood. And if they suspect that this type of allergy is going on, they can, again, give antigen to these T cells and see how these T cells will react and what they will, what kind of cytokine what kind of substances they will start producing and if there is this reaction then it's a suspect for elimination because otherwise you can pretty much do a guesswork and you wouldn't even know what to start eliminating from your diet so do you have any guesses as to you know why you get antibody reaction versus t-cell reaction does it have to do with the um, the fact that it was injected or 
does it have to do with the fact that of the how hepatitis B infects? Is there? Um, I mean, it, there is there's so very little information about it. And when I was in graduate school, this phenomenon wasn't even in the textbook. And I don't know if it's in the textbook even now. So this is something that has been developing for the last 20 years. But when I'm talking to health professionals, they're saying this phenomenon is coming forward more and more. Mm -hmm. And so there are some very severe manifestations of this phenomenon. Maybe you heard a disease called FPIs. Mm -hmm. So that would be on the very severe end of it. So basically, if somebody is exposed to whatever antigen that's triggering this, they would have um, like a, almost like a, a viral, uh, like GI virus kind of thing. Um, it wouldn't look like allergy at all. It would be looking like a gastrointestinal virus um, mm -hmm. episode. And then it would really dehydrate them because of diarrhea and all of that. Mm. But on the more, um, uh, you know, on the more chronic side, some aspects of IBS could also fall into that category. So there is the whole spectrum, which is now being recognized that um, they're trying with um, determine what kind of foods are, offend, uh, are causing this or, you know, triggering this. But obviously it's not the foods themselves that trigger that they trigger it only if you already have that susceptibility in you and mm -hmm. how do you get that to start with yeah how do you get that to start right. with and yeah. um besides besides the foods that have yeast on the label and breads and things that we commonly are there other foods that have yeast that people aren't typically aware of yeah so, um, so the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, that's the yeast species that the vaccine is being grown in. Originally, it's a fruit yeast. It was present, or it is still present on, obviously, on grapes and plums, and it forms this whitish layer. And mm -hmm. later on, it was adapted for bread making or for wine making or for beer making. It's also made into nutritional yeast. And more recently, I discovered, again, through you know, my personal experience is that kombucha, um, there is a yeast in kombucha called Saccharomyces boulardii, and that is also a related yeast species. It's genetically very similar. It, it gives you, you know, it, um, it is cultured under different, under, under different conditions, so it gives you a different type of drink, but genetically it would have the same, similar components, and, you know, my gut was telling me that something was up with kombucha, so... Yeah, I well, have to look it up. And uh, um, you you make me think about the fact that, you know, once in a while I get on a sourdough kick and I make my own sourdough starter and, you know, and, and make homemade sourdough breads. And of course, to do that, you just take some, the best is like an organic rye flour and water and you sit it out on the counter with cheesecloth on top. And lo and behold, it eventually begins to bubble and smell like yeast, like bread. Yeah. And so these yeasts, those are in the same family, very all related to the commercial yeast products, correct? Not necessarily. Actually, yeah. those could be very different. And for okay. me personally, for me, sourdough bread doesn't cause a problem. Ah. And that is um, something that um, we have a sourdough um, um, vendor here in the area. And she was mm -hmm. saying the same, that families that buy um, bread from her, um, their kids could not eat conventional bread, mm -hmm. but they eat the sourdough bread um, that she makes from scratch from these wild yeasts and they have no problem. And I have the same kind of experience. So 
it's you know not only is it genetically or antigenically related but mm -hmm. those that have will have will cause problems is she using organic wheat or is the only difference the type of yeast that she's using for her sourdough? so usually the way sourdough is made it's made from scratch so whatever yeast is in the grain that's mm -hmm. the yeast and it's not really isolated to really know what kind of species are there it's just a, a whole family okay. of yeast that might be okay well i was just wondering if 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 like if she's using organic flour because as we know most wheat is sprayed with roundup glyphosate before harvesting so it's not organic i'm just wondering where glyphosate might play a role in in uh in bread but this is very exciting, I would think, for you to discover that there's a delicious sourdough bread that you can eat because bread is so wonderful. I just hate the idea of somebody not being able to eat bread. <laughs> yeah. So um, so one of the things we were going to then talk about, um, well, we're, we're well, already... Well, you know, let's just, you know, before we uh, maybe move away from, from this yeast, um, in general, yeast is actually really good for our GI health. And um, I've sent you a few papers prior to that. Mm -hmm. So there, there are some structures in the yeast cell wall, some polysaccharides, beta-glucans, mannons. They do something positive to the gut in a way that it, that increases glutathione. And we know how important glutathione is. Yes. So there were studies done with poultry. They were feeding this yeast cell wall supplement, I guess, to poultry and looking at their GI health, so that was improving. They also did some studies in mice where they were uh, treating mice for constipation with this oh. um, cell wall, and that was also resolving. Huh. So um, there's obviously something really positive in, in that yeast for us, and we've been always coexisting with this yeast. And actually some people might even have that particular strain of yeast as a um, commensal, in their in their gut so it might be growing in their gut and that's probably just one percent of people so imagine if now uh, we are turning this yeast which was beneficial into a into an enemy and mm. now the immune system goes and attacks it or every time we're exposed to it or people who actually harbor it like for good Mm -hmm. you will have inflammatory bowel disease, right? Because that's what it mm -hmm. is. Inflammatory bowel disease is when your immune system attacks your microbiome and causes collateral damage around it. Wow. I hadn't ever heard it described that way. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah. So, and it seems like, so you've got so many things like that ripple effect. Um, if it's also impairing your ability to make glutathione because you're not getting all these goodies that usually the yeast would provide that further impairs your immune system and um, makes you susceptible to other things. So is yeah, there- there's certainly other ways to, you know, compensate for glutathione through other ways, but we are just yeah. losing certain beneficial, yeah. you know, ways of keeping that up as well. But it's, and it's good to know that you, that individuals who discovered this about themselves, that they have it, that they can look out into the world and there may be, like you have found a sourdough bread that you can eat and there may be yeast that they can be exposed to without triggering any of these symptoms. So that's really good to know. But you do have to be a label reader. I'm mom to a child with severe multiple allergies and you do have to be a label reader all of the time. Oh, and I want a little, a little um, news alert for 
people who haven't heard in this time of COVID, the FDA in their infinite wisdom granted manufacturers, um, they kind of waived some of the requirements on food labeling. So if they're short of something and they need to substitute in their product, they don't have to change the label to warn the consumer that there's something in there that's undisclosed. They, they didn't waive it for like the top eight allergens, but other foods can be substituted. And I find this completely appalling if one person ends up in the hospital or dies because they ate something that wasn't on the label because the FDA told um, them that they didn't have to update the label. Um, that's, that's one too many people uh, brought to harm. So many people have food allergies today. So what describe for the listeners symptoms that if they suspect, um, you know, this might be happening with them. So I wouldn't really go into medical things because I'm not a medical doctor. For okay. me, it was just abdominal pain and that would come in bouts and then goes away and then it comes again. So there are like flares up and down. So what I'm looking at some of the conditions that are out there, clinically described conditions, there is one called lymphoid uh, hyperplasia. And maybe you recognize that term because of Andy Wakefield's research. Right? Oh, it yeah, similar. it does. Well, no, he has a different accent when he says it, but right. yes. Okay. <laughs> so basically I, I just looked into that and that particular condition, which of course I'm not diagnosed, uh, you know, um, officially with that. But mm -hmm. what I'm seeing there is that that condition could be either asymptomatic or it can have abdominal pain or chronic diarrhea or bleeding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there are basically different areas of severity. So um, mm -hmm. if this is what I have, if that's the abdominal pain that falls into that, lymphoid hyperplasia, hyperplasia means that you just have a lot of lymphocytes in your gut. And T cells are lymphocytes. Okay. And the field, the field of non-IG mediated GIFA, right now it's known that it's also T cell mediated, but that field never looks in the gut. They only look in the blood and they try to figure out from blood samples what might be going on in the gut, but they never really look. So mm -hmm. Andy Victor looked in the gut, but he approached that from a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if his research wasn't shut down if the two fields would actually merge and would, it could be that the T cells that are um, in the gut doing, doing this damage, and maybe there is some, you know, relatives of those same T cells clonal that are in the blood that can be measured. Well, we don't know. Basically the science mm -hmm. was stopped on this. And that's why I think it is so important to pay attention to our kids that it's not just GI pain. It could be GI pain plus much more because once the gut gets damaged, um, Dr. Wakefield, he also found ulcerations in the gut in addition to all these lymphoid uh, cells in there. Mm -hmm. And once your gut is damaged, you know how things can leak into the bloodstream. It can affect the brain development and uh, what we have today. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of, geez, it's been three or more years now, maybe four headlines. Um, University of Virginia, was it, that came out with it, where they discovered that the lymphatic system is directly tied to the brain. And before that, they thought the blood-brain barrier prevented anything from crossing into the brain. So what happened to the body seemed to be like separate. 
But once they discovered this, there was this article that just said, Re, we have to rewrite all the textbooks. We have to rethink everything we thought we knew, we knew about neurological and immunological because they are so much more intimately related than we had realized. And with um, a lot of um, neurological, neurodevelopmental issues that we're seeing in our children today, um, you know, a lot of people put them on, uh, parents put their children on diets that does eliminate um, yeast, breads, you know, wheat, dairy, um, a lot of foods that on which vaccines are cultured, they eliminate those and the children not only feel better, but their symptoms improve, their neurological symptoms, their symptoms that might have been labeled um, autism or some other thing improve. And in fact, we're going to be having on next Friday, um, a woman whose son was diagnosed as with, with severe autism. And she went down the rabbit hole and did a lot of therapies. I haven't explored completely what she's done. I'm looking forward to doing some research and, and she's going to be talking next week because her, her son's now graduated from college. I mean, healing is possible. Um, so was there anything else about those particular vaccines or your experience that you wanted to, to share with readers before we move on to like this, this new hepatitis B vaccine that is out there? Yeah, well, let's just move to the new one. Okay. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the old ones, they had aluminum and they had this, and they still have this, they're growing in this uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast. Now this new vaccine, for some reason, they changed the type of the yeast. It's still grown in yeast, but now they moved to a yeast called Hansenula polymorpha. So that yeast is found in the soil, not so much in the food other than spoiled orange juice, as I found out. Hmm. So it's interesting. Why did they change the yeast? Right. But um, in addition, what else they did, they switched from aluminum to a very new adjuvant. And the, the adjuvant is called CPG. It's very new. That's the only vaccine that uses it. And as we know, alum, um, can turn your immune system into what's called TH2 direction. Actually, IgE, both IgE and non-IgE allergies are both TH2 uh, phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Now, this one is actually can throw your immune system more into TH1 direction. That means more inflammation, more autoimmunity. Mm. So I don't know if it's necessarily a better thing, but when they did their preclinical studies and they were comparing two groups there was never true placebo so one group was this new vaccine another group was the old vaccine mm. with aluminum and so but basically the new vaccine there was a safety issue or safety signal that people had more heart attacks actually and yeah. they kind of swapped it under the uh, carpet and still approved it eventually but this is this adjuvant that was never used before yeah. and never compared against true placebo. Yeah, I remember watching that ACIP um, meeting a bit stunned because they did the vote whether or not they would recommend this brand new vaccine, the brand new adjuvant um, to the general public. And it was a hundred percent yes vote. And they were all happy and delighted and smiling. And then they went around the table and they asked people if they had any comments. 
and somebody spoke up and said, well, this is, this is an advancement, you know, it's good that we're doing this, um, but I do have some concerns about that myocardial infarction signal. And then somebody else asked about this novel adjuvant, you know, um, can it be given with other adjuvant vaccines? And they had no idea. There were no studies at all done with anybody getting, say, an aluminum adjuvanted vaccine and this brand new adjuvanted vaccine to see what would happen if your immune system is suddenly um, provoked with two completely way, new ways, right? There's no studies. But then they said, but, you know, we generally recommend people get um, all their vaccines together at the same time. So they basically said, okay, Americans, you're gonna be the guinea pigs, you know, and, and we'll find out in two or three years when um, reports get come in, whether or not anybody is harmed by this, then we'll find out, right? But when you go to the doctor, they don't tell you this, especially if you get your vaccines at a pharmacist, they're not saying, oh, by the way, <laughs> Um, informed consent is really, really lacking. I, and and I, I really encourage listeners, go to YouTube and look up ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. It's this federal committee. And watch some of the proceedings. They're all recorded and available for you to watch. See what, see, what most people don't realize is that their decisions are all based on information provided by the manufacturers who stand to profit. There's no third party independent verification of the results. Everything is put before them. Um, they have to trust what they're told. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they're often told, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And they vote for it anyway. I, it's, it's appalling. Um, anyway, some of the best part of those meetings though is the public comment. Some in the past couple of years, people have been giving amazing um, public comment. So this, so we have out there the Heplisav v, um, B vaccine, only for adults though. This one is not yet approved for children. So I guess they're looking to see the harms it may do to adults before they move um, to approve it for children. Uh, yeah, and so, they usually expand their markets just like with flu shots, it was first for one group mm -hmm. and it just keeps expanding without really learning from any safety issues that occur along right. the way. Right. Yeah, when they handed over um, in 1986 was with the National um, Childhood Vaccine Injury Act and everything was handed over to Health and Human Services. Everything has to go through this vaccine court, but it's not a, a real court. Um, there's, you know, there's no judge and there's no jury. There's no discovery. You just have somebody presiding over. You have to try to prove um, with some science that you have to figure out and hire people to get that your injury is related. And even if you prove your case, it doesn't set a precedent. It you know, whatever happened to you, whatever you learned and, and whoever you found to, to support you in this process, whatever is learned doesn't go down to improve either that product because the vaccine makers doesn't, don't have to even show up um, or to how the vaccine is administered, um, except for in very rare cases. So no lessons are learned from the harm. There's, there's just so much reform that needs to happen, which is why we're here. We're here. Um, Informed Choice Washington is here and Tatiana is here and an Informed Life Radio is here 
uh, because we believe in informed consent and healthy immunity. So, you know, we're working very hard to bring you all of the information. In our last minute or two here, um, Tatiana, I want to talk about BBCH, this fabulous um, organization that you started, Building Bridges in Children's Health. Can you explain um, to us more about what that is? Yeah. So, well, as you see with our public health, um, with the bigger picture, it's almost like we are on a Titanic that's headed towards iceberg and um, there is no way to redirect it. It just has this inertia and no matter how much we petition and ask them to improve science, nothing is happening. So it's really up to us to get into a lifeboat, get off this Titanic and just research for ourselves. And in the beginning, uh, you know, like maybe 20 years ago, there were no really opportunities for scientists and lay people to come together and talk about these issues. Um, and basically, people were just getting information from the doctor and doctor would only get information from the regulatory agencies. And so we know how, how that is. So now we have an opportunity to actually come together and brainstorm science, not just provide content for passive um, uh, you know, absorption, but to come together and we do this uh, every month. We have BBC mm -hmm. Zoom meetings where uh, a group of people um, gets together and we, we have um, somebody who presents the topic and then we discuss and lots of good and interesting information and insights are coming from that that um, I find really beneficial. And this is how I discovered my own problem, right? So mm -hmm. um, by preparing for one of these meetings, so um, the best way to, I guess, to learn is to teach something or try to teach it. And yeah. as you mentioned, like just recently, we had Karen Feltzer um, give us a really great presentation that inspired a lot of thinking. And we are going forward with this every month. Yeah, I, I just, it's amazing to me. And I love how you choose either yourself to do a deep dive on a, on a current issue or on something that you know that people in BBCH community want to learn about. Um, and then you present that or you bring on a, a special guest who has done such research on a specific topic. Um, the topics have just been amazing. I mean, you brought on somebody once who, uh, uh, why, I, I've gone blank on what is that, Anaste uh, anesthesiologist? That was amazing about, you know, so much there um, and, the other benefit to belonging to BBCH is not only do you get these um, these conversations with this amazing presentation and then lots of time for Q&A to ask your questions and get them answered, but the presentation slides are made available then to the members so you can go refer to them at any time and it's it's become this amazing collection. And then there's also um, immunity fundamentals. Describe what that is. Yes, so natural immunity fundamentals, it started as a class that I was giving over and over and over again for people, and then eventually I recorded it. So we have that as a class um, there. It's for members to look at it, and it basically describes how you can improve your immune system. Um, and what, what, what does your immune system need to function properly so that it doesn't really um, derail your interactions with viruses and bacteria that's out there? Yeah, that's I, I love that. I need to go back and review that every so often. So you 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 lead people through what is a virus, 
what is a viral infection and how does your body respond to a virus? What, what, and bacteria and, you know, you, you go through the whole list there. Um, oh, I hear our music. I'm talking over. Well, Tatiana Okohanich, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Everybody go to um, her website, BBCH dot community or tatiana .com. you can find links on informed choice washington you've been listening to an informed life radio on 11:50 a.m kknw have a great weekend